Alzheimer's, aneurysms, anorexia, anxiety, arrogance, arthritis, asthma, bipolar disorder, bitterness, bulimia, cancer, death, depression, drug abuse, earthquakes, epilepsy, famine, flooding, heart attack, HIV and AIDS, hopelessness, hurricanes, infertility, injustice, insecurity, jealousy, loneliness, malaria, miscarriage, me, you, murder, oppression, Parkinson's, pollution, poverty, pride, rage, racism, schizophrenia, sexual assault, stroke, suicide, tornadoes, tsunamis, wildfires, and world wars. Last week we started off our framework series where we are moving through key passages of the Old Testament showing how the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. And so last week we looked at, we looked at the first chapter of Genesis where we saw that God is the creator of everything that is, that God spoke and everything that is came into existence and that it was very good. There was harmony between God and man and between God and the rest of creation. And so last weekend after church, Lauren and I went and did some sermon application and we went up to the mountains. And as you can tell, the aspens are just in full bloom, changing colors right now. And the number of times that I just had to step back and just be in awe of what God had done. I, I couldn't even count how many times I did. But, but even while we were there in the, the middle of one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen, I, I couldn't help but feel attention. I, I couldn't help but feel that something still isn't right. Something is wrong with the world. And so what I did was I set a timer for five minutes and tried to come up with a list of all the things that are wrong with the world. And in just five minutes, I could come up with that list of Alzheimer's and cancer and miscarriages and racism. And um, no, my brain doesn't think in alphabetical order, but that's just how it came out. Um, We all know that there is something wrong with the world. We all know that there is something wrong with us. Just be alive for two minutes and, and you will know that something is not right. And so that's what we are going to be looking at this morning. We are going to be in Genesis chapter 3, continuing in our framework series, and we are going to be looking at where it all went wrong. We are going to be looking at the moment when sin and pain and brokenness and strife entered into the world and got us in the mess that we all find ourselves in. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. This story, this narrative is often referred to simply as the fall. So it starts out in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so if you've heard this passage before, um, you, you'll eventually know and we'll figure it out as we study that this snake is representative of Satan. 
who the rest of the Old Testament will refer to as the deceiver and the accuser. And you might be wondering, well, this serpent came out of nowhere. You know, first chapters were you know, all about God and man and the beauty of creation. Where, where did this bad serpent come from? And the truth is, we don't really know. Um, there are some passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel that refer to him and, and his origin and his fall, but for the most part, this, this passage is silent. This passage is much more focused on our plunge into sin and into darkness. And so from the snake's very first words, we know that he has bad intentions. First words out of his mouth, he is misrepresenting and misquoting God. He says, did God really say you can't eat of any tree? Because what God actually said back in Genesis chapter 2 was, he said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God said to Adam and Eve in his perfect and beautiful creation, he he said, you can eat of this tree and this tree and this tree and this tree and that one and that one and that one all the way, as far as your eyes can see, you can eat from infinity minus one amount of perfect and beautiful and good and pleasing trees simply because I love you. Just don't eat from the one tree. So the snake comes in and he says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree? Not one What a buzzkill. God's trying to hold out on you. He's trying to hold joy from you. He doesn't want what is best for you. Now, there are a lot of things that we need to know and that Scripture teaches us about Satan, but it would appear that the very first thing, the very first truth about Satan that Scripture gives us is that Satan does not fight fair. Satan is not interested in truth. He takes God's truth and he twists it, he spins it, and he manipulates it. He he is not going to say, here is what God says and here is what I say. And I'm going to let you decide. He's going to take God's truth and warp it and say, this is true. Satan always over-promises and under-delivers. So next time that you are facing any sort of temptation, no matter what it is, you need to remember you need to look at it for, and see it for what it really is. And it's a lie. It is a farce. It is not true. If Satan is not going to fight fair, then we need to know that and we need to remember that. So Satan misrepresents God and then Eve responds. She says, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And just from that sentence, Satan already knows that he's won. Eve was partially right. She she got the part of, We may eat from any tree except for the one. She got that right. Where she messed up was was with what she added at the end. She added... Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God had actually said, you may not eat of it, lest you die. But Satan had introduced just a little bit of doubt that maybe God actually is holding out on me. So I I can't even touch it without dying. So Satan, he's, he's got him on the hook, so he just starts reeling him in. He says, surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like 
God. Big irony is they are already like God. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God made them in his image after his own likeness. There is a stamp of divinity in all of us simply because we are human. We are made in the image and the likeness of God. But Satan comes to us and he twists the truth and he misrepresents what God says and says, if you take this, then you will be like God. You can become greater than you already are and be like God. So the woman bought it and she ate of the tree and she gave some to her husband who was also with her and he ate. And the moment that they took that fruit and they ate it, that is when everything went wrong. That is when their relationship with God was broken. That was when uh, disease entered the world and their bodies started to break down. That is when the creation itself got broken. Every wrong thing that we see in the world all came from this one moment. And we're going to see some of the specific consequences in a moment, but I, I actually think we need to spend a moment on verses 7 and 8 because it shows us the biggest consequence, the biggest loss of the fall. Verse 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It just, it reads so tragically. Because it was when they heard God walking in the garden that they went and hid themselves. Have you ever known somebody so well that you didn't even have to see them, that you knew who it was? Like growing up, I always knew which family member was walking upstairs above me just by the way that they walked. Okay, my dad, he strikes with a heavy heel and he's taller than me. And so it sounds like there's an eternity between each step. Very, very long stride. My mom, she's really short. So she's got the short little pitter-patter feet. And my sister, she weighs 130 pounds, but somehow she sounds like an elephant training for boot camp. It's just, I, 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 could, I could identify which family member was walking around just because I knew them. I was familiar with them. And, and Adam and Eve had that with God. They knew God, they loved God, they enjoyed God, they worshipped Him, they relaxed with Him, they conversed with Him. We, in our own sinful state, we can't understand the closeness and the intimacy and the vulnerability and the openness and the comfor- comfortability of their relationship. But when sin entered the world, that perfect relationship was broken, and that was the major loss of the fall, that God and man can no longer be together. And that's what the rest of the Bible is all about. It is God seeking to restore that relationship and that closeness. So God's going to start that process. So he starts asking some questions. You know, the, you know where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Did, did you really eat of the fruit? And then everybody starts playing the, the blame game and pointing fingers. And so Adam says, she made me do it. And then Eve says, the snake made me do it. And let's read what God says to each person. <clears throat> he starts with the snake. He addresses the snake first. 
And he curses the snake and he says, you are going to be cursed above all the other livestock and you're going to go on your belly and eat dust for the rest of your days. And he ends his cursing of the snake with a promise. In verse 15. And verse 15 is far and away the most important verse in chapter 3. might even be one of the top five most important verses in the Old Testament. And he ends the curse of the snake with this promise. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, this verse is oftentimes referred to as something called the proto-euangelion. Let's break that down. Proto, meaning first. Euangelion, meaning good news or gospel. That's where we eventually get the word gospel. So this is the first pronouncement of the good news. This is the first gospel that we have in Scripture. And the promise that God is making is he is saying to the snake, there's going to be enmity between you and the woman's offspring for the rest of time. But one day... One of this woman's offspring is going to come and he is going to rise up and he is going to crush your head. He is going to kill you. He is going to defeat you. In the, pro- in the process, you are going to strike his heel. So, so you're going to get a good lick in there, but ultimately you are done. And it is all going to be through this woman's offspring. And so as you move to the New Testament, it becomes very clear who this promised offspring is. It's Jesus. Think of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. For three days, it looked like Satan had won. The light of the world had gone out, and this promised Messiah was in the grave. He got a real good lick in. But after three days, Jesus resurrected. He defeated death. Death died in the death of Christ. And Jesus smashed the head of the serpent. Jesus won. All of that has its roots in chapter 3, verse 15. Meaning that all the way back here in Genesis chapter 3, God knew what he was doing. Jesus was always the plan. The cross was always the plan. Adam and Eve didn't sin, and God said, Oh my gosh, I did not see this coming. Um, Okay, Son, Holy Spirit, angels, gather around here. We have to come up with something to fix this. No. God knew. Revelation 13, verse 8, actually describes Jesus as the Lamb that was slain before the very foundation of the world. The cross was never plan B. So even though this was God's plan from the beginning, it doesn't mean that Adam and Eve won't experience the consequences of their sin. Grace doesn't mean that sin gets swept under the rug. So God tells them that there will be a pathway for deliverance through this promised offspring, but then he goes on to tell them how their sin is going to affect them until that offspring comes. So God starts out with Eve... And in verse 16, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the first way that the fall is going to affect women is going to be in childbearing. Which sucks, because God had originally told them, be fruitful and multiply. Like, 
How's that for a command from God? It's like you wake up your first day on earth and you're on your honeymoon. God says, get to it. All right, great, God. This, this sounds awesome. Like, what would be better than that? But because of the fall, women are now going to experience pain in childbearing. I think if you went around to most mothers in this room and asked them, what's childbirth like? I'd say, it's one of the most beautiful and sacred moments of my life, but it was also one of the most painful moments of my life. I I loved it and I hated it all at the same time. Meaning that the curse has found its way into one of the most beautiful and powerful and intimate moments of, of simply what it is to be a human. So women encounter the curse in childbirth. We also see the rest of the curse that they also experience it uh, in their marriage and in many of their other relationships. God said, your desire shall be for your husband. Now that word desire, that form of the word, isn't the kind of like honeymoon kind of desire. We actually see this word pop up again in the very next chapter as Cain is considering killing his brother. And God said this to Cain. He said, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Meaning that sin wanted to master Cain. Sin wanted to dominate Cain. Sin wanted to control, micromanage, belittle, and demean Cain. Sin wanted to make Cain its puppet. Alright, so I want to speak in very broad strokes and very gently because this can go both ways. But I think... Um, especially in marriage relationships, I think if there is going to be a belittling, domineering, and controlling one, it is sometimes the woman. Um, Like I've just seen a lot of women who, you know, their husband can't even go one mile over the speed limit or one mile under without getting criticized or can't even just eat the the food off of their plate in the right order. I I think some women in, in a, a sinful, broken world, can the sin they have to fight against the most is the tendency to be over-controlling and critical. And we're going to see the fall obviously affects men too. I think if women tend to be overly critical, that the sin that men have to fight against most is the sin of being absent. Notice in the temptation story, where was Adam? He was there the whole time says, Eve took of the fruit and gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam saw the danger of what was happening, and he just stood by unhelpfully passive. I think that's why men are usually the ones to walk away from a marriage or a family, or it's where you get the picture of the man who comes home and just sits on the couch and drinks beer and watches football for six hours a day, as they avoid and are passive in their responsibilities. So the fall affects women in childbearing and the sin that women have to fight against is the sin to be critical. Men have to fight against the sin to be unhelpfully passive. And then God adds a specific way that the fall tends to affect men. It says in verse 17, Because you have listened to your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. 
So similarly to how God had originally instructed Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and the curse affects women in the pain of childbearing, similarly, God had told Adam and Eve to uh, take dominion over the earth and to subdue the earth. And now one of the primary ways that the fall is going to affect men is through their frustrated work. Okay, Satan, or um, Adam, before the fall, was a very efficient and productive and fruitful worker. He tended to the garden, he named the animals, he put work in, and he got a great yield and product out of it. But now because of the fall, we are going to work in pain. We are going to labor, and we are going to toil, and we are going to work very, very hard, but not get very much return out of it. You ever just have one of those days where you wake up and the car doesn't start and you get to work late and your boss is mad at you and you missed an email and the system goes down and there's miscommunication and just nothing will work? just feels like you're trying to solve a Rubik's Cube that's fighting back? That is a result of the fall. I call that a thorns and thistles kind of day. And of course, women can and do experience this, but... Just personally, I think something about the way that God has designed men, we tend to put more of our identity and purpose into work. So when work doesn't go well, it, it just it frustrates us to no end. And as descendants and inheritors of Adam and Eve's sinful nature, all those consequences are passed down to us. And we have been experiencing those consequences every day ever since. And so the passage will end with God kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden. But before he does, there are two graces that God does for Adam and Eve that I want us to see. There's one grace that God does before kicking, kicking Adam and Eve out, and there's one grace that God does simply in the act of kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden. So the first grace is found in verse 21. It says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. All right, so if I think verse 15, that promise of the seed, is the most important verse in this passage, I think verse 21 is the most fun. Verse 15 is the first promised gospel. Verse 21 is the first pictured gospel. So Adam and Eve were clothed to cover their sin and their shame, and what were they clothed with? Garments of skin. Sounds like a pretty obvious question, but where do you get garments of skin? From an animal. So in order to cover Adam and Eve's shame in their nakedness, something had to die. Blood had to be shed. Innocent blood had to be shed. Sound familiar? I think verse 21 is a Christological clue that can only be understood looking back. God had promised us a Savior in the offspring of the woman, and he pictured that coming Savior to us in the shedding of innocent blood in order to cover our sins. We didn't know what he would look like at the time, but in retrospect, we can see that verse 21, we knew that innocent blood was going to have to be shed in order to cover our sins. So God is kind and gracious in covering them. And the second grace that God gives is actually to remove Adam and Eve from the garden at all. Sounds strange, but read the rest of the passage with me. Verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So so did you notice that pause? God said, now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. I, I don't know of any other time where God is speechless. God doesn't finish his sentence. He just trails off and then immediately kicks them out of the garden. I think why is because he considers what would have happened if Adam and Eve would have stayed and had they eaten of the tree of life and lived forever in their current state. Now, in their fallen, broken, sinful state, had they then taken of the tree of life, they would have been stuck there, immortally sinful. And that relationship between God and man never could have been restored. And so it was actually the kindest thing that God could have done would be to remove them from the garden so that they could not partake of that tree. So the possibility of reconciliation is still open. And so he kicked them out, and we are now all living east of Eden. Fast forward, who knows how many years forward, and you get to the New Testament. And this other man pops up. He claims to be God. He has lived a sinless life. He does the things that only God can do. And he says that the saint, just like how sin entered the world through that one man, Adam in the garden, I am the one man who can take away that sin. Christianity is the only faith that will say, you don't have to clean yourself up or dust yourself off, or or pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Christianity is the only religion where God will come to you, where God will take on your own frame and become like us and take our sin upon himself. When Jesus came to us, he was just continuing that rescue mission of reconciling God and man. And to close, you don't have to turn there, but I want to read from Revelation chapter 21. Almost the very end of the Bible, that relationship, that separation between God and man we saw in Genesis 3, here's how the story is going to end. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The beginning of the Bible ends with that relationship being broken, God and man being separated. The Bible ends with mission accomplished. Christ has come, he has lived a sinless life, he has died, and he has resurrected to reconcile us to God. And that is how the story is going to end with man dwelling with God and God dwelling with man in a new heavens and a new earth. No tears, no death, no cancer, no Alzheimer's, no depression, no miscarriages. It will be perfect. If you've been here on this earth for two minutes, you know something's not right. You see it out there, but you also see it in yourself. 
The only remedy for that is Jesus. He is the only one who can take that pain and that brokenness and that sin and that shame on himself and reconcile us to God. And so look to him in faith. Look away from yourself. Look to Jesus. Cast yourself at his feet. Look at him on the cross. See his beauty. See his power. See his majesty. See his grace. See who he is. And then look forward to that perfect day. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are through and through sinful. We have rebelled against you and we have rejected you. We have chosen any and everything other than you. And we have no right to even address you. And yet you have come to us in Jesus and you have made a way. And so, Lord, I ask that you would use the the wrongness of this world as a prick to our consciences awaken us to the reality that things are not right. And then by your Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus is who he says he is. He is your Son, and he has made a way for us. And that he is coming again. Would you keep us and would you strengthen us until that day? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.